Let us pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this, your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. The Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 45, verses 3 through 11, and verse 15. Listen for the word of the Lord. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father of Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brother talked. His brothers talked with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 6. Listen again to God's word for us. Jesus said, I say to you that listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For the measure that you give will be the measure you get back. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in a prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word, with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true to your everlasting goodness, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love, and grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Across the millennia, this is perhaps the most consistently countercultural message of Christ for us. Given the way it challenges our sense of not simply justice and fairness, but also of prudence and self-preservation. On their face, these commands sound like calls to be a doormat, to be walked all over. And more challenging yet, they seem to give those with harmful intent free reign to abuse not simply us individually, but our loved ones and anyone else we might be able to protect if we could simply hit back, counterpunch, retaliate in kind. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. What is this? Jesus cannot be serious. Enemies are those folks who seek to do you harm or have already done you harm. Enemies want to see you fail. In the most petty sense, they just want to see you embarrassed or tripped up or teased or annoyed. Enemies are those folks who harbor a grudge against you, who never give you the benefit of the doubt, who nitpick all that you do, who make snide or condescending comments at or around you. In more serious ways, enemies strive to prevent you from maybe being promoted or advanced in your career. They may seek your financial and vocational ruin. They might steal from you. They might take from you. They might make unreasonable demands of you. And in even more extreme cases, they might seek to verbally abuse you or physically abuse you. They might demean you or beat you or attack you. And this harm could all happen on an interpersonal scale, or it could be systematically set up and built into institutions and laws and social norms. It's also something that could happen violently and militarily across nations. When Jesus talks of loving your enemies, he's talking about loving folks who seek to hurt you or have already done so. 
whether in small, nagging, petty ways or in larger, more egregious, lasting ways. Now, some of us have suffered these kinds of experiences worse than others, but no matter the severity or the circumstances, Jesus calls us to love, do good, bless, and pray for these folks. But what does this love entail? We'll hold off this morning from delving into the long-standing debate that Christians have had for millennia about what this means in terms of use of force, especially use of lethal force on a personal or societal scale. Followers of Christ have argued deeply if, when, how such force could be legitimately justifiably used in light of Christ's teachings and life. And that's an important conversation to have, but perhaps one best had in something more like a Sunday school setting where discussion could unfold. But to a large extent, Jesus fleshes out what this love looks like in our very passage this morning. You love your enemies by doing good to them, blessing them, praying for them, giving to them, lending to them, without banking on getting anything in return from them. It entails not self-righteously judging them or resentfully condemning them, but rather being merciful and forgiving them, just as God has been merciful with you, with us. In his commentary on Luke, William Barclay notes that embracing this kind of divine love in relationship with those who mistreat us means, quote, No matter what others do to us, we will never allow ourselves to desire anything but their highest good, and will deliberately go out of our way to be good and kind to them. Notice that Barclay's definition is not an anything-goes response, and we'll talk about that more later, but it's a response that seeks the well-being of the one who would do you harm. And we know the well-being of any of us entails ultimately a conversion, a turning to love God with all your heart, soul, and might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Responding in love and in grace, in kindness and forgiveness, with sincere blessings and prayers to those who would do you harm is an immense and powerful witness, a testimony, an invitation to be drawn and turned into that twin love of God and neighbor. It's about as powerful a testimony as one could imagine. It's also important to notice as well that Barclay's definition of love, this kind of love of enemy as seeking your enemy's well-being, it also focuses on our actions and our intentions in regard to those who would or have done us wrong. This love does not necessarily entail warm and fuzzy feelings so much as good and gracious actions that flow in line with God's love for us. Martin Luther King Jr. fleshes out this same point in a sermon in his book, Strength to Love, noting that this kind of love of enemies is, quote, an overflowing love. It is the love of God working in the lives of men. And when you rise to love on this level, you begin to love men not because they are likable, but because God loves them. You look at every man and you love him because you know that God loves him. And he might be the worst person you've ever seen. 
Dr. King continues, and this is what Jesus means, I think, in this very passage when he says, love your enemy. It's, a, it's significant that he does not say, like your enemy. Like is a sentimental something, an affectionate something. There are a lot of people that I find it difficult to like. I don't like what they do to me. I don't like what they say about me and other people. I don't like their attitudes. I don't like some of the things they're doing. I don't like them. But Jesus says, love them. And love is greater than like. Love is understanding, redemptive goodwill for all men. So that you love everybody. Because God loves them. In that quote, Dr. King hits on the core rationale that Jesus gives for us to love our enemies. We're to love our enemies because that is how God deals with us, and that is how God loves them. God's creative grace, God's saving grace, flow out indiscriminately upon us every day. As Matthew recounts in his teaching in regard to God's creative grace, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and to send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God's creative and sustaining love, God's creative and sustaining actions for us are not dependent on our love for God. God's love is not based in reciprocity, which is especially evident in God's saving grace for us. Even though we sin against God, sin against our neighbors, God does not respond in kind or even in giving what we deserve, but instead, God rushes and rushed to offer us salvation, sending his son, hurling himself into the eternal consequences, the eternal judgment, the eternal sorrow, and God-forsakenness of sin for our sake, so that we might be brought back into right relationship with God and each other. Paul articulates God's love for us in his letter to Romans along these lines as follows. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. 1 John chapter 3 and 4 similarly and poignantly capture God's love for us, this love for us even though we were enemies to God. We know love by this, that Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Nobody's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. Ultimately, and put simply, Jesus calls us to love our enemies because that is how God loves us. Jesus calls us to love the way God loves, to do as God would do when faced with hostility. And in doing so, we lean into the charge that Paul, the charge that Paul also placed in his letter to the Romans, 
to, quote, not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. In his book, Loving Our Enemies, Reflections on the Hardest Commandment, the author, Jim Forrest, highlights a powerful example of this kind of love. He tells the story of Louise and Nathan Degra Finreed, a couple who were in their 70s and living in Mason, Tennessee in 1984. Jim Forrest tells of an encounter that they had with a man named Riley Azrano, who had days earlier escaped from a state prison. He was serving a 25-year sentence for second-degree murder. And Riley had come, burst into their home one February morning in 1984. Forrest writes, Riley aimed a shotgun at Louise and Nathan and shouted, don't make me kill you. Louise responded to this nightmarish event as calmly as a grandmother normally responds to cases and accidents that befall a grandchild. Young man, she said, I am a Christian lady. I don't believe in violence. Put down that gun and you sit down. I don't allow violence here. Riley obediently put the weapon on the couch. And he said, lady, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten in three days. While Nathan got their unexpected guests a pair of dry socks, Louise made a substantial breakfast, bacon and eggs, toast, milk, and coffee. She put out her best napkins. When the three of them sat down to eat, she took Riley's hand in her own hand, and she said, young man, let's give thanks that you came here and that you're safe. She said a prayer and asked him if there was anything he would like to say to the Lord. And he couldn't think of anything, so she just suggested, just say, Jesus wept. A journalist later asked how she happened to choose that text. And Louise replied, because I figured he didn't have no church background, so I wanted to start him off simple. Something short, you know? After breakfast, she held Riley's hand again. He was trembling all over. Young man, I love you. And God loves you. God loves all of us, every one of us, especially you. Jesus died for you because he loves you so much. And then the police arrived. And hearing the approaching sirens, Riley said, they're going to kill me when they get here. But Louise said she was going to go out and talk to them. Standing on her porch, she spoke to the police in the same terms she had spoken to the convict. Y'all put those guns away. I don't allow no violence here. And the police, as docile in their response to Louise as Riley had been, put their guns back in their holsters. And soon afterward, Riley was taken back to prison. No one was harmed. Louise and Nathan might also have been killed, of course. Good, decent people die tragically every day. 
But actually, it isn't so surprising that their warm welcome to a frightened man provided them with more security than any gun. Louise had an enormous impact on Riley's life. Riley recalls praying with Louise when she came to visit him in prison. She started off her prayer, he recalled, by saying, God, this is your child. You know me, and I know you, Lord. That's the kind of relationship I wanted to have with God, Riley said. And in 1988, Riley became a Christian. Louise was often asked about the day she was held hostage. Weren't you terrified? A reporter wondered. I wasn't alone, she responded. My savior was with me and I was not afraid. Louise and Nathan have powerful testimony and embodiment of the love of those who would do you harm, doing good for them, blessing them, praying for them, and doing so in ways that are transformative in the kind of mercy and care that you show. Many of us, if not most of us, have not necessarily had that dramatic and life-threatening an encounter, an opportunity to let God's love shine so graciously and courageously through us. But I think one place that's a little bit more close to our everyday lives where the call to love our enemies does land for most, if not all of us, again, in an everyday kind of way, is something that is important, especially in our polarized times. And it's in the ways it has to do with the ways in which it has become all too easy to see those who disagree with us as enemies. In his book, A House United, which we'll have a chance to talk about this Thursday evening, Alan Hilton notes the ways that it has become very easy to see those who disagree with you about what's going on in the world and what should be going on in the world as enemies, as those who are out to harm us, to harm our loved ones, to harm institutions, ideals, traditions, aspirations we hold dear. We often see those who disagree with us as, at best, ignorant of some key facts, and more likely, just not very smart, and at worst, as outright malicious, outright seeking to do us harm. As Hilton writes in his book, quote, we often live with the stunted, simplistic conviction that the world will only be better off without, quote unquote, them. And he continues, in our time, Christians have stepped into the left-right battles over abortion, the Christian identity of the United States, the immorality of entertainment media, gun laws, recreational drug use, immigration, a host of other issues. Right-wing and left-wing Christian leaders pronounce on these issues and then lather up like-thinking congregations until they self-righteously dismiss their Christian brothers and sisters on the other side of the issue. One of the key things that Hilton encourages in line with the call to love one's enemies, as well as whether they're direct enemies or those we just perceive as enemies, Hilton calls on us to, quote, learn and practice collaborating and building community across our differences. He encourages us to learn how to disagree well and constructively, rather in ways that generate mutual distrust, demonization, resentment. He sees learning to disagree well and to work across differences as a skill that the church in particular 
can and should lead the way in practicing and in sharing with the broader community. Hilton holds, quote, the people of our country need someone to teach them how to find things they can do together well, how to stay in the same room when they disagree on important things, and how to talk to one another about those important things long enough to make something better than either person could have done alone. Loving our neighbor as ourselves and being faithful citizens of our nation may just require this kind of ministry. Hilton writes, Along these lines, and along all that we've been talking about this morning together, brothers and sisters, loving our enemies ultimately entails leaning and living into the kind of prayerful words that are attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, words we will shortly sing in our hymn. Lord, make each of us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Jesus, our Lord, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. To God be the glory, brothers and sisters, forever and ever. Amen.